Maybe you've heard of Slack, but what is it? Slack is your new HQ. One place for everyone at your company to find answers, share updates, and stay caught up. Slack, where work happens. Get started at slack.com. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramerica. Other people want to make friends. I'm just trying to save you some money. My job is not just to entertain, but to educate and teach you. So call me at 1-800-743-CNBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. When it comes to trade wars... You need to understand that there's not just two economies. There's now three. That's the best way to get your head around how there could be such a disparity in the stock market today. With the Dow plunging 252 points, S&P plummeting 0.69%. Well, the Nasdaq barely blinked down 0.27%. Now, we've got the domestic economy, and that will not be hurt that much by tariffs. And it's overrepresented in the Nasdaq. We've got the international economy, which is genuinely at risk and is overweighted in the Dow and S&P. And then we've got technology, the technology Ah. stocks, which seem like they'll be relatively unscathed by the retaliation that we've got to expect from the countries that President Trump just hit with aluminum and steel tariffs. Today's decision to hit even our allies with those tariffs, which are meant to combat the effect of Chinese dumping on the global market, has rocked a lot of stocks, especially the industrials and the financials. Now, this actually makes sense. You hit a country with tariffs, they're going to hit back. That's what they do. They don't just take it lying down. The industrials are naturals to be slugged in the gut by tariffs from countries as wide-ranging as Canada, Germany, Mexico. Come midnight, their steel exports will be hit by a 25% duty, and their aluminum exports by a 10% duty. Now, this came as a surprise because these countries are our allies, and we have free trade treaties with them. The administration had been debating whether to make their exemptions permanent, but it didn't pan out. Remember, our stock market got hammered when the president first rolled out these tariffs in March. Then we rebounded on the news of the exemptions, so it stands to reason that we'd roll back those gains now that the exemptions are going away. And the industrials are the most obvious targets for retaliation. Again, the sell-off was rational. Our bank stocks also got hit because a reduction in world trade will produce less commerce, something that the banks need for more business. Look, now, I've been railing about how it made no sense for our market to get slammed by this latest crisis in Italy, even though, as I heard and read people over and over again tell me to really worry about it. I wasn't. They've got a new government there, but that's not the point. The U.S. economy has very little to do with Italy. They'll probably end up generating more business for our banks because the economy there is so bad the money comes here. Tariffs are the opposite. Okay, they very much matter to our economy and they are worrisome. If you're fretting about tariffs, then I have to tell you, you're being rational. Understand this is not a policy question. Even if you generally support these steel tariffs, as I do, the fact is that they're going to impede trade. And that's just plain bad for stocks, except the steelmakers. And we only have a handful of them. Why does anyone support tariffs then? Because some industries are essential, like the steel industry. And for a variety of reasons, they need to be protected, like because of defense, especially when countries like China subsidize their own steel producers, making it difficult for anyone else to compete, even, even our best companies. 
And that's why the banks and industrials are getting hit. But they're just one part of the equation. We know that domestic stocks have been very strong, especially the quintessentially domestic retailers. Going to be more on those later. The smaller businesses that don't export much and the professional service entities that support those businesses. If their stocks are in the S&P 500, they may have gotten slammed today. But I bet they bounce back pretty fast, probably by tomorrow afternoon. This domestic international dichotomy plays out every time trade policy takes center stage, always has. This time, though, there's something both new and, frankly, I have to tell you, astonishing. This time, technology stocks that are tethered to the cloud and the Internet of Things are going higher, not lower, as if investors have decided that their wares won't be retaliated against or maybe they're two of import to have that happen. Still, other stocks are actually the unintended consequences of new European rules and are acting incredibly well because of those rules. Why don't we start with the latter, because the performances are so stark. First, there's Alphabet and Facebook. The Europeans just put through these new privacy rules. You see them. It's called like GDPR. And they require the reader to give consent to see ads online. If you're Alphabet, which owns Google, you can't trust some smaller sites who happen to compete with the companies in Google's vetted marketplace. Basically, they can't link to sites that don't comply with these new privacy regulations. So the business just falls to Google. Facebook's in an analogous situation. The big guys have figured it out, and they know how to comply. Talk about unintended consequences. This is probably the last thing the European regulators want to have happen, but it's given our big web companies a huge break. And there are no tariffs to be found on Google or Facebook. Huge wins for these stocks. Then there are companies that are involved in onboarding uh, enterprises to the cloud. You know, we talk about them all the time, Cloud Kings. I mean, remember Salesforce the other day at, at StockTac? Well, ServiceNow, Adobe, Red Hat, Splunk, VMware, which just reported an incredibly strong quarter this very night. That said, I don't want to be too glib here about the positives. Canada, right out of the gate, said it would retaliate against the U.S. dollar for dollar. Canada's our friend. True. I expect Europe to do the same thing. Plenty of American exporters will see their numbers cut as their goods will no longer be competitive in these countries. It will hurt. At the same time, when our president slaps wide-ranging tariffs on steel or aluminum, that's a de facto price increase on everyone who consumes steel or aluminum. Uh, So more number cuts for those companies, too. Now, I want to make something real clear here. The tariffs that just came down aren't big. We as consumers will barely notice the cost. That's true. Wilbur Ross is right. But once you start a tit-for-tat trade tiff, there's no knowing where it will stop. And that's what people are really worried about. Our president says he's trying to make up for the poor trade policies of previous administrations that he believes hurt the American people. Now, I come back and say it's actually a little more complicated than that. Many people in this country have benefited inordinately from free trade, while others have been hurt inordinately. If you care about consumers paying less for goods in the aggregate, and everyone's a consumer, right, then you're against tariffs. They make the cost of living more expensive for everyone. But if you work in industries that have been destroyed in part by government-subsidized foreign competition, as was the case with my late father's business, well, then you're pro-tariff. Of course, the former group is a lot bigger than the latter, so obviously the market's going to go down on this news, not up. But let's forget about the aggregate for a second, because this is mad money, not mad trade. You want to profit from the news, which is why you come to the show, because we're t- talking about the future, not the past. The single biggest beneficiary in the whole country from this tariff is a company that you know well from watching the show, and that's Nucor, the nation's largest steel producer. For years, China has depressed the price of steel by subsidizing it, its own producers, and then glutting the world with excess supply that ends up here. 
Nucor has done everything it can to lower the cost of its raw product and make itself more efficient. It's the most efficient steel maker on Earth. But, you know, even do, after that, there's still no level playing field because the Chinese government subsidizes its own steel makers as a make-work program. Destroying the profit margins of Nucor, keep them so they can't expand the way they want to. Can't hire more people. In the same world, we just subsidized Nucor right back. But Congress would never authorize that, and that's not what Nucor wants, by the way. So if the president wants to protect our steel industry, these tariffs are the best thing he can do. Yet the stock was barely up today, and that, frankly, is insane. My Chapel Trust owns it, and we are telling members of the ActionAlertsPlus.com club that Nucor, look, buy it all the way down. It's the winner. Bottom line. Whatever else President Trump's tariff decision means for the market, I think you're being given a gift here. You can buy the stock of the one real corporate winner from this whole mess. There's 499 basic losers, unless you want to count U.S. Steel and AK, which I don't, okay? So the winner is Nucor. I suggest you take it before someone else does. Let's go to Ann in New York. Ann. Jim, booyah. Booyah, Ann. Calling about Gilead Sciences, long-term holder. They had some news. Apuza approved in China, $10 million with top C. Buy, sell, hold. What's your thoughts? Gilead is what we call dead money. It's 67 bucks. Is it cheap? Well, they got a lot of capital. I cannot think. I mean, Anna, I can't think of a reason to buy it. I can't. Uh, selling at 67 seems wrong, but I have no catalyst to buy the stock. What can I say? I want to go to Bob in Texas. Bob. Jim Kramer, how are you? Having a fine day. How about you, Bob? Hey, Jim, if I was doing any better, God would be jealous. Now that is a statement and a half, my friend. Listen, Jim, my question is about Las Vegas Sands, LVF. Their earnings have been good. Their dividend growth for the last five years has been over 20%, and their overseas business has been a cash macau, so to speak. With the potential of gambling being uh, negotiated in Brazil, is LVS a good long-term play? Look, LVS, I mean, look, you know what the problem with LVS is? The industry is rife with good managers. Although Steve Wynn, now I do not comment on the personal stuff, but Steve Wynn is the best manager I've ever seen. Uh, but uh, Wynn is still well-run. Uh, LVS is fantastic, and MGM is great, and I would hold on to LVS. And yes, you can buy it. It's that good a company, even up here. At, by the way, it's 52-week high. All right, when it comes to tariffs, there are now three economies. Yeah, there's international, there's domestic, and there's tech. And by the way, what do you want to buy? Who's the winner in the S&P 500? It's Nucor. Man, buddy, tonight, Nutanix has nearly tripled since the company's CEO first joined us on the show. Smart fella. So is it time to circle back to the name? I've got the exclusive. Then 3M has been one heck of a sticky situation, but I'm pitting the bulls <laughs> with the bears to tell you where I stand. And from gaming to hospitality, this company's got some hot properties in its portfolio, and it's got a nice yield. I'm sitting down with the CEO of Vici Properties to find out what's going on. So stick with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at CNBC.com or give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. When I talk about 
the analyst rise of cloud computing, there's a lot more to the story than software as a service and data centers. Tons of companies use some form of what's known as hybrid infrastructure, where they're using uh, some old-fashioned on-premise software, some private cloud solutions, and some public cloud networks. Many businesses have a kind of a hodgepodge approach to information technology, to put it politely, which brings me to Nutanix, NTNX. It's a company that deals in what are known as hyper-converged systems. Plain English, Nutanix has a cloud platform that combines all of a business's server management, storage, and virtualization needs into a single package, allowing clients to run their servers more cheaply and more efficiently. Plus, with this platform, you can roll out new technology a lot more quickly. Now, for the last year, Nutanix has been on fire. It's nearly tripled over the past 12 months. But in recent weeks, stocks cooled a bit. When the company reported last week, it delivered better than expected revenues, up 41% year over year. But they also gave us a wider than anticipated earnings loss. And while management raised their sales forecast, they lowered their earnings forecast because they're hiring people so rapidly. And that's to meet demand. Meanwhile, Nutanix is shifting toward a more software-focused model, not cheap, even as I think it's certainly the right thing to do. Stock initially got hit on the news, although since then it's made up most of its losses. We're giving back some today. Makes sense to me. As far as I'm concerned, it's crazy to punish a growth stock for spending a lot of money. <laughs> when they're growing, stock's up 51% for the year. Do not take it from me. Let's check in with Diraj Pandey. He's the co-founder, chairman, and CEO of Nutanix. Get a better sense of how this great company is doing and where it's headed. Mr. Pandey, welcome back to Mad Money. Thank you, Jim. All right, you guys are doing so well. I downloaded your app, by the way. I get pushed a lot of stuff by you. And the only reason I understand, I have to admit, is a little bit hard to understand. But I want you to explain to people the idea that your mission is to make infrastructure invisible because it's a constant theme in what I read about you guys. Yeah, I think uh, uh, computing has gone through a lot of modernizations every decade. Uh, The last modernization of data center infrastructure was more than 10 years ago with this advent of virtualization software. And uh, with that came a lot of sprawl and inefficiencies and people trying to fit old wine in new bottles. I think that's how Nutanix was born when you looked at the inefficiencies of virtualization uh, with uh, a lot of computing sprawl that was going on. So we had to re-architect everything for the world of virtualization, which is how this idea of hyper-converged infrastructure really came about. And going forward, there's another modernization that's about to happen in the cloud, and that's another opportunity for us to really go and improve efficiencies and reduce the sprawl in cloud. I mean, people are thinking about what does it mean to really go towards cloud. There's a huge issue of cost governance and security compliance that in this multi-cloud world, Nutanix is going to really solve. So there's act one was when we were modernizing infrastructure for the first time 10 years ago. Act two is starting as we talk about uh, hyperconvergence of clouds, not just hyperconvergence of boxes. Okay. which is what we did in the last eight years. All right, now, uh, we also have been big fans of VMware as well as Nutanix. You guys do go at it at times. Enough business for everybody? Yeah, there's enough business for everybody. Obviously, we are taking a very different design point. It's more about consumer-grade infrastructure. It's about saying, what does it mean to really up-level the consumption rather than thinking about specialists? Can we have cloud generalists go and manage this cloud? Because it's going to be about the public cloud, the private cloud, everything in the middle as well. So it's really about bringing an Apple and Amazon-like simplicity uh, and an e-commerce-like consumption model to infrastructure itself. And that is a level playing field when it comes to the public cloud itself. Okay, we often hear executives come on in your, in your position. They say, listen, we've got a land and expand Uh, philosophy. And then I never hear anything about how they expand. You've got a chart in your deck which shows you guys have done rather remarkable once you're in, haven't you? 
Oh yeah, absolutely. You know, you look at our customers. You know, like uh, JetBlue and Amgen and. Uh, Northern Trust, many of these companies, they really started small because that's the essence of cloud, is to start small and pay as you grow. And we're bringing that kind of a consumption model, the fractional consumption model, to on-prem as well. And you'll see us do this across both on-prem and off-prem. Uh, in fact, there's not just about fractional consumption, but also how do you make it delightful for developers? You know, Home Depot is one of our customers, and they recently started doing a lot of DevOps with us. You know, they recently won an award at our .next user conference into building containers and the next generation of compute technologies onto Nutanix itself. So it's kind of a festival, that conference, right? I mean, I know what you said it was standing room only at Anthony Bourdain. I mean, what does it do for your brand recognition? Well, I think the biggest power of this conference is really about the power of social proof. When customers talk to customers, uh, when, they, uh, when prospects talk to customers, when partners talk to customers, I think that's where you see the groundswell appear. You know, there's a movement around Nutanix right now that I feel really good about. In fact, it is very unique because uh, there are pure play cloud companies, there's uh, the stodgy hardware companies, there's the last generation virtualization software companies, and here we are talking about a new design point of really blurring the lines between owning computing and renting computing. And a lot of it is about how do you make it radically simple for our customers. So people just love it when they share the notes and the success story itself. And we learn a lot. I mean, as a company, we are all about constant learning and evolution. We learn a lot about what's going on with cloud itself. There's a massive sprawl, there's a massive wastage. People don't understand security. And that's how a lot of our new sort of product ideas come about in this conference. Well, terrific. I know that people should go. You should download it. You click on the ad. You click on uh, the website. You've got unbelievably good graphics. I can see why you say it's delightful, because you do a lot of teaching, and that's what I like. That's Siraj Pandey. He's the founder, chairman, and CEO of one red-hot company, Nutanix. Thank you so much, sir. Good to talk to you. My pleasure. Yeah, money's back here, too, buddy. When a once beloved stock gets put through the meat grinder, we got to ask ourselves if we're really dealing with a broken stock or perhaps something much worse, a broken company. If the underlying business is fine, a broken stock can bounce back, no problem. But if the business itself is broken, well, then let's just say it deserves to be in the meat grinder. And it's a different story. So how do you tell the difference? I want you to consider the case of 3M, okay? That's the big diversified conglomerate that we own for my travel trust, which you can follow by joining the ActionAlertsPlus.com club. Here's a company that's a longtime Kramer fit. For years, 3M stock were higher, thanks to the leadership of CEO Inga Tulin. 3M was a powerhouse of innovation, constantly rolling out new products across many different markets, industrial, safety, graphics, healthcare, electronics, energy, and the kinds of consumer products that they're best known for, like post-it notes, including the extreme post-it notes that you have to put on your head when you do something like I did and buy 3M much higher. So when the stock started tanking along with the rest of the market in late January and February, we decided to start building a position in it from a charitable trust. I figured 3M was a broken stock. I believed in the company's ability to deliver the kind of numbers that would get its share price roaring again. Since then, though, the stock has kept getting slammed and slammed and slammed. And I can't blame anyone for worrying that 3M might be starting to look like a broken company. What happened? 
First, the bankable CEO, Inga Tallinn, is set to step down as chief executive. He's staying on as executive chairman. But the company's current chief operating officer, he's taking over as the next CEO. I and mean, that's a very real issue. And we can't afford to be too glib about it. Second, 3M is a very much of an international company. They do a ton of business in China, for example, a lot of their growth. So when the president starts cracking down on trade, people freak out and dump this stock almost as much as they do, say, Caterpillar. Uh, today's tariff announcements didn't help as they uh, leave 3M open to retaliation. Third, the last quarter was widely considered a disappointment. But, and this is a big but, I think the company is still doing okay. The monster decline in the stock, it's down nearly 24% from its January highs, shedding almost $40 billion worth of market capitalization, to me seems really excessive. So is it a broken stock or a broken company? Is it something that can bounce back or are there real reasons why it deserves to go lower? And I'm wearing it. You know what? It actually depends on who you ask. The thing about 3M is that it's become a pretty controversial stock, and that's not the norm for this amazing company. But before we get into the bull bear battlefield, we need to talk about why this stock has been obliterated in recent months. The swoon started with the market-wide breakdown at the end of January, which really requires no explanation whatsoever. Then in March, we got the one-two punch of President Trump's steel and aluminum tariffs. That was the original. And the Inga Tulin leadership transition. The real problem with the tariffs from 3M's perspective is less that they could cost the company money, although they do, and more that investors are worried about what a larger-scale trade war could do to the business. With 3M getting less than 40% of its sales from the United States, it could be a real problem. On top of that, the great Inga Tulin will indeed step down as CEO on July 1. And while I'll still serve as executive chairman, look, I, I, I can't hide it. It's going to make the bull case weaker. To make matters worse, in late March, 3M warned investors that its organic local currency sales growth for the first quarter would come in at the low end of the previous guidance that they just issued two months before. Management told us that while January and February were strong, they saw some real weakness in March across a number of their industrial business lines. That's not the kind of thing that makes the market happy. Now, fast forward to late April when 3M reported, and while the headline results were okay, a top-line beat with one-penny earnings miss, the organic local currency or, uh, sales growth was even worse than the company's warning the month before. It's up just 2.8%. On top of that, management shaded down the high end of their full-year guidance because of rising raw costs and slightly slower growth. Once again, the stock got slammed, and it's been languishing in the 190s for the past couple of weeks. So what do we do with the stock at 3M here? Let's start by entertaining this bear thesis, because right now the bears are ascendant in the stock. And the most influential Ursine character here is Steve Tusa, J.P. Morgan's industrial analyst. He started telling people to sell the stock in September, predicting slowdowns in some of 3M's key end markets, like autos and electronics, as well as in China. And while he was early with that call, missing out on a big run from $210 to $259, the last quarter did indeed show a softening in electronics and autos. Basically, his thesis has been that there were more risks here than most investors were willing to recognize. So he's been arguing that the stock deserves a lower valuation. Tusa has been adamant that 3M does not deserve its reputation for consistency. He thinks it's sensitive to a bunch of cyclical end markets, which means that the numbers could potentially deteriorate more rapidly than many of us expect. Still, even this Uber bear only has a $190 price target on the stock. That's only that's six bucks from where it's currently traded. Remember, though, Tusa told people to sell GE. Nine ways to Sunday when it was at $28. And that was a pretty great call, given that it's been cut in half. Plus, I got to give it. The guy's got character and panache. 
All right, how about the bull case? Okay, earlier this month, RBC Capital upgraded 3M to outperform. Their argument, they see the recent softness as being mostly short-term in nature. More important, given the way the stock is historically traded, they argued that it had come down too far too fast, and to the point where 3M stock's basically too cheap to ignore. Now, this morning, we got another note from RBC after they met with 3M's chief financial officer, Nicholas Gangestad. Let me just read you a snippet, because I thought this was really important and pulls and really pulls the bull case in front of the bear case. And I quote, Management remains upbeat about its growth levers, pricing power, and capital allocation optionality with buybacks and M&A, end quote. They're predicting 3M will spend closer to the high end of 4 to $5 billion buyback target for 2018. That's substantial even for a $118 billion company. RBC continues, and I quote, We did not hear any new worries crop up. On the contrary, the underlying macro remains favorable, end quote. So where do I come down? All right, look, 3M is a very well-run company that's been doing a great job of improving itself. Now, if you think the global economy is going to run into a wall because of rising barriers to trade, or you think the recent softness is in a few of 3M's business lines, including those related to auto, will spread to other parts of the company, I could understand hating the stock if it was at 250 230 220 uh, uh, But, you know, at, at $197? No, at these levels, 3M's stock is selling 17.5 times next year's earnings estimates. That's roughly in line, in line on average, with the other large-cap diversified industrials. Except unlike them, 3M does have a lot more exposure to safer, less cyclical industries like healthcare. And let's just, you know, I mean, let's be honest. 3M is a much better-run company than almost all the other average companies that sell at the same multiples. It's almost insulting to lump it in with the bottom line. Look, we blew it, which is why I'm wearing the Post-it, right? That's what I remember in, in Confessions of a Street Addict. You wear the Post-it when you have the stock wrong. You have to wear it all day. You got to wear it around the block. I got it wrong, okay? Bought it too early uh, for the Chapel Trust at the end of February. Big mistake. Before we found out that Inga Tulin was retiring and that the business turned soft the next month. I thought we were getting a rare buying opportunity a consistently high-quality stock. Instead, we were staring down the barrel of a much larger pullback. Still, at these levels, I think it's too late to sell. Darn thing is just too, just too cheap. The stock has been de-risked after the recent decline. And if you do believe that the last quarter was temporary blip, then the rebound could be terrific when 3M gets its act together. But even if you want to dump the stock, I believe you'll get a better chance to sell no matter what. I can't believe I'm wearing the Post-it for the company that makes Post-its. Jeff in Pennsylvania, Jeff. Hey, Jim. Great to talk to you. Same. Hey, I'm very interested in Boeing. I got a little bit of dry powder. Should I wait for a pullback after the recent run-up, or should I just jump in now and go for it? Saw Dennis Mullenberg today. He was at the Street.com's office in a terrific interview that he did with Brian Sazis, the editor-in-chief. My take is this. I think you buy some 3M now, and you buy some 3M later. And let me just make it really clear. Okay, I want to be really clear about this. China needs 3M more. China needs, needs Boeing more than Boeing needs 3M. 3M. What am I doing? I got 3M on my mind. Boeing has a lot of business. They don't need the China orders. China needs Boeing. So my take is if you're selling Boeing stock because you're worried about China, you're making a big mistake. The Chinese are not going to cut their nose off despite their face. And I am talking about 3M now. Um, 3M, on the other hand, well, I don't know. I think it's finally time to buy. But then again, you could say I said that much lower. I said it much higher with Boeing. I did say Boeing much lower to buy. All right, let's go to Brian in Florida. Brian. Hey, Jim. Thanks for having me on your show. Not a problem. In the last couple of months, U.S. Concrete reported a miss on earnings, and Spruce Point Capital released a call to short the company. Yeah. It has 
60 to 90 percent downside. Uh, does U.S. concrete's rapid expansion by acquisitions and large debt concern you? And how do you feel about the shortfall by Spruce? Okay, look, they look. It's a thought-out short call. I happen to like U.S. Concrete, but you know what? We didn't get the big infrastructure bill, and I liked it for the infrastructure bill. So, I mean, until you get that, I think you're going to mark time. But boy, I think that if you think that this company's not a real company, I mean, it did have some accounting issues. They cleared the accounting issues up. The stock is down a great deal, uh, but you need the infrastructure bill to get the thing going. And without it, you're not going to get it going. Period. End of story. Let's go to Alan in Maryland. Alan, how you doing? I have a question for you. Can IEP, a NASDAQ-listed stock, maintain its $7 a share dividend, given it's the largest investor in Herbalite and has roughly a 2% net margin? Okay, we're dealing, you know, we are dealing with Icon Investment Properties, uh, I have to tell you. Candidly, I don't really know exactly what's in it. That always makes it very difficult, and the dividend can, it can fluctuate. But am I ever going to go against uh, you know, a, a company that has done incredibly well, that's made you a huge amount of money, including 30% this year? No, I'm not. If you want to own it, that's fine. Let's go back. Boeing, I think the Chinese need Boeing more than Boeing needs the Chinese. And 3M, well, when I bought it, I needed like a hole in the head. But down here at 197, go check Confessions of a Street Addict. I'm wearing the post-it. I'm wearing the post-it. But I like it. I'm wearing the post-it. All right, listen up. Depending on you, it asks, 3M could be a broken stock or a broken company. It's gotten way too controversial. Still, uh, I, I like it here. All right, we're always looking for opportunities to make money, so tonight I'm highlighting a new name. Don't miss my exclusive with Vici Properties, V-I-C-I. Then retail's a mixed bag, but what company has the winning game plan? You may be surprised by this one. And all your calls rapid fire in tonight's edition of The Lightning Round. So stick with... Kramer. Tomorrow, kick off the trading day with Squawk on the Street. Live from Post 9 at the NYSE. What is it? I came, I saw, I saw, I came, I conquered VGVD. are just unbelievable. You are unbelievable. You can use my Tuscan house. I can? Yeah. It all starts at 9 a.m. Eastern. The yield benchmark 10-year treasury has pulled back rather dramatically from its highs. Is it an opportunity to own dividend stocks like the real estate investment trusts again? To help answer that question, tonight I want to introduce you to a new one. It's called Vici Properties. It's a casino and hotel REIT that owns a bunch of Caesars properties, both in Vegas and the rest of the country. After the old Caesars declared bankruptcy, they ended up spinning off the real estate assets as Vici. And this company then came public earlier this year. Regular viewers know I really like the domestic casino plays. So how about a casino REIT? Now that we don't need to worry about rising rates, at least at this very moment, this one yields 5.4%. Well, when Vici reported earlier this month, the company gave us a clean top and bottom line beat. Business is good here. So let's take a closer look with Ed Petoniak. He's the CEO of Vici Properties to learn more about the company's prospects. Mr. Petoniak, welcome to Mad Money. Good to see you, sir. Yeah, good to see you. Well, we are intrigued by your company. Please have a seat. Uh, having been to both the Caesars properties in, in uh, Atlantic City and also uh, in Vegas, you've got some real high-quality real estate. Why don't you tell us how it came about? 
because this should be uh, multiple years that then you make a lot of money from these properties. That's absolutely right, Jim. So th this came about by virtue of um, a, a bankruptcy process that an entity within Caesars did go through. And the creditors of that entity decided to get their credit satisfied by taking the real estate of those assets as their consideration and put together a board and a management team, of which I'm now obviously part, um, to create what we believe can be and is becoming the next great American REIT, built around these incomparable assets. Right. Um, uh, in terms of my background, I, I've been in ski resort operations, beach right. resort operations, desert, run two hotel REITs. I have never been, been privileged to work with assets that are as economically majestic as assets like Caesars Palace, Las Vegas, and so many of the assets that we own and that our great partner Caesars operates. Uh, really, only theme parks exceed them in economic. Yeah, we've been, you know, we, we recommend Cedar Fair and Six Flags, and they've been great for our viewers. Jim Muren's a friend of the show and a friend of mine when I used to be a hedge fund manager. He has MGP, as MGM. Uh, tell us the differences and similarities between that, which we've been recommending, and yours. Yeah, well, MGP's got great assets. Jim obviously runs a great company, great operator, great branding. Um, our, our business is built around being an independent REIT. Um, there's no overlap between board and right. management teams of, of our one tenant at this point and eventually multiple tenants and ourselves. Um, uh, we, have, we really like the distribution we've got between Las Vegas and, and the regions. We right. think the regions give us resilience and stability. Vegas gives us upside that we love That's in the future. Very good point. You have diversification and it's at arm's length. There's no, you are not on the board of Caesars. Now, your, your president knows the Caesars yes, well he does. because he came from that, which we want, obviously. We want. Uh, but we also know that you are not limited to Caesars. You have this experiential idea, which we've also liked as a good theme for real estate investment trusts. It's, it's, it's a great theme right now, given where the culture is going. And when you look at so much of the value that's been created in real estate, especially experientially focused or leisure focused real estate over the last 10 or 20 years. It's been about people like Ian Schrager and Barry Stern, like right. recognizing where's the culture going and what's the implication for place-based leisure. And we think the next 10 to 20 years are an awesome period for this, given that you've got millennials who invent, invented destination blank, whatever that is, fill in the blank. Right. Um, and the baby boom going into semi-retirement and retirement and having the greatest amount of leisure time in their lives. And it will be about the seeking of experience, not of things. Now, is there anything you can do with some of the properties that uh, where you maybe own the land to? Uh, to the Chester property, which is mm -hmm. I'm familiar with. That's a beautiful property. Yes. And, it, and they remodeled it recently. It's great. You just own the building. Buildings, you actually own adjacent land, too. Uh, the, 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 we own the adjacent land, too. And what we'll always be eager to do with Caesars or any of our other partners is go through an envisioning process that, that constantly reimagines and refreshes the experiences. And I would just say, just to take one moment, I've never been exposed to operators that are as ingenious at constantly reinventing the guest experiences gaming operators are. Right. Totally. Amazing. Yep. And now, when you uh, look at other experiential, we have uh, recommended from time to time EPR, which they do golf. And golf's a really terrific business. It's really on fire. I mean, would you think about doing something like that? Well, we actually own four golf courses yeah, in the stands it, right I now. But I don't, I, aren't they part of the... The TRS, yes, the, yes, yes, the taxable okay. REIT subsidiary right. within our entity, and 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 we're gonna we're gonna see how we do there. And I agree with you. I mean, there's some tailwinds reviving behind right. the sport, and and the golf industry deserves credit for recognizing they had issues in the experience that they're addressing to fix, whether right. it be time commitment or or sheer difficulty. Okay, because I I wondered if that was gonna bubble up from being from in that subsidiary. Last thing is that uh, we're quite intrigued by gambling and what it might mean. 
uh, resurgence, new uh, visitors, whatever. And, and particularly, you've got Heartland Casinos. Uh, yes. It, place, places, do you think, that might be uh, hubs of gambling? Absolutely. And, you know, and, and sports gaming, we think, is a, is a positive for the, for the entire country where it takes place. We think it potentially introduces a new generation of customers into the asset, gives them one more reason to visit. Right. Um, this is a generation that loves the shared experience. There is no rational reason to explain why hundreds of thousands of people go to Las Vegas in March to watch basketball games on big televisions. They do have televisions at home, but it's the sharing of the experience that we think is what is bringing people together. And we think our regional assets have a chance, especially with a stronger economy between the coasts, finally, to to benefit from that and and offer shared experiences, whether through sports betting or other experiences that make them the magnets they can be. All right. Well, look, I think it's terrific. I'm glad you explained the difference between this one and MGP, which we also like, but they are they are very big differences. And I want people to know them. That's Ed Petoniak. He's the CEO. You know, Vici Properties, it's V-I-C-I, like came, you saw, he conquered. Then money's <laughs> back here to the break. <laughs> Thank you. It is time. It's time to the lineup. What is that? That's what we're talking about. Put us out. And then the lightning round is over. Are you ready, Skig? Dang, time for the lightning round. Well, let's start with Joe in Illinois. Joe! Thank you, Jim. I love listening to your show. Before I ask you, I want to ask you about American Brands. I bought it when it was Smith & Wesson. But before that, I want to ask you, how did this bulva come around, about? How did this bulva? I'm sorry, bulva. Ameri- well, I don't know. I mean, look, all I know is, is that on the Dick Sporting Goods, uh, they actually has talked about this category being so weak. It just happened. The charts turning up here. Maybe you can get out of it a little bit higher, but I, I didn't like what Dick said about the group. Let's go to Cameron in California. Cameron. Booyah, Jim. Booyah. How much higher is Lulu going? I'm holding these FDs with my friend Chad. Uh, I was wondering how much longer okay, I should hold Okay, I am only looking at the headline numbers, which are great, but I always tell people not to, not, not, not to trade until you listen to the call. I have to listen to the call tonight. Obviously, the headline numbers are fabulous. Let's go to Norman, South Carolina. Norma. Okay. Yes. Norma, you're up. Yes. 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 Hello? Hi, Norma, this is Jim. What's up? I want to know what's with Henry Shine. I'm down 8%. Should I take my lumps or hold Uh, on? I, I don't know. I don't know why the numbers have not been strong there. They just have not been strong. The dental category is very challenged. I know that from 3M, and I know it from Dan and her. We got to find out from the source. I need to go to Ralph in New York. Ralph. Yes, how you doing? Um, uh, you know, I'm talking about Regeneron here. Regeneron's getting very little respect. You liked it at 500. You liked it at 400. It's about 300. Why don't they just go private? No, no, no. Why, the more likely thing scenario would be that Santa Fe, which owns a gigantic chunk, might just buy them if it keeps going down. That is not what Len Schleifer wants to do. Len Schleifer founded the company. He is a terrific, terrific businessman. And I think that the stock is bottoming here. I think the group is bottoming here. That All that said, I know, it has been one painful ride. Santa Fe owns 22%. It wouldn't shock me if they wanted to buy it all. But they'd have to get, they'd have to get uh, Len's poop. Let's go to Larry in Florida, please. Larry. Hey, hi, Jim. Larry from Cinder Island, Florida. I try to watch your show five days a week. You have a great show. Thank Jim, you. I got I'm a great calling. staff. Go ahead. You, uh, you betcha. Jim, I'm calling about box. It fell as much as 11.8% today. 
What happened? Was it from uh, a shot? You know, look, the stock left? has been straight up. Let's give Aaron his due. I mean, the company is actually doing incredibly well. Uh, I know that there was a lot of hot money in the stock. It's come back down. You can pick some up in a couple of days. Let's go to Adam in Florida, please. Adam. Booyah, Jim. Adam from Miami Beach. Nice. With growing sales and upcoming catalysts, is it time to buy Opco Health? I, I don't know what to say. I mean, the bioreference lab, was that such a bad decision to buy? I don't think so. I think the stock down here, it's just too cheap. I hope I don't have to pay for that comment. And that, ladies and gentlemen, this is the Lightning Round. The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. How the heck does a stock rally 25% in one day without getting a takeover bid? Well, how about we ask Dick's Sporting Goods, which did just that yesterday after reporting a quarter where the company's really finally firing on all cylinders. Well, certainly enough cylinders to get the bulls going. If you don't know Dick's, this is a stock that peaked at 62 bucks and change in 2016. It's a remarkable multi-year run. But then in 10 very short months, the stock plummeted to $24 as everything that could go wrong did go wrong. The stock, the company, the whole category, they all went bad at once. How horrendous did it get? To put this in perspective, yesterday Dix told us that same-store sales declined by 2.5%. Transactions fell 3.7%. Yet that was considered amazing enough that the stock's still rocketed up 25%. Can you imagine what happens if the same-store sales actually go positive? Well, you don't really need to imagine because after the conference call, it was pretty clear that that's exactly what's coming, which is why the stock caught fire and it's still a buy. Yep, yesterday, Dix put on a clinic and what an ailing retailer needs to do to send its stock into the stratosphere in the modern day brick and mortar companies. First up, this stock should never have gone up to 62 bucks to begin with. At the time, investors got all bulled up about the fact that Dick's principal competitor, Sports Authority, went under. They didn't just shut down slowly. They didn't liquidate over time. Just bang shut. Kind of like what happened to Toys R Us this year. People figured that Dick's had the category to itself. Wow, coin money, right? But what Dick's really had was way too much inventory because the Sports Authority bankruptcy ended up flooding the channel with supply. Excess inventory is the bane of a retailer's existence because it means a whole lot of sale merchandise and even losses on merchandise, which few in this razor-thin margin business of retail can handle. If you want to understand the enthusiasm about this latest quarter, though, a lot of it boils down to what CEO Ed Stack told us in the call. It's pretty simple. Quote, our inventory was down and our sales were up, helped drive the margins positive, and we expect that to continue through the balance of the year. Bingo! Or put it another way, the sporting goods industry has finally gotten itself back on track, and the largest player in the group, Dix, will be the biggest beneficiary. Now, we know from Manny Chirico, the CEO of PVH, came on the show last night, that this is the best moment he's ever seen for the company in, I don't know, more than 20 years. No wonder his stock rallied almost 3% on a really ugly day. So Dix is part of an even larger wave of consumption, glorious consumption, as PVH touches far more doors than Dix does. Still, it's not just the Sport Authority channel inventory that's gotten under control, easing promotional concerns, or that the consumer's finally spending. Dix has also made some fundamental changes that are typical of all the successful brick-and-mortar retailers that are left in the game. Candidly, the old dicks didn't really seem to understand the online revolution, particularly in Christmas of 2016, which we now know was the holiday of death for most brick-and-mortar outfits. That's when management learned that most people begin to make their purchasing decisions online now. 
It's when it dawned on most retailers, including Dick's, that if you didn't have the lowest prices on, on or offline, the most in, inventory handy when the customer wants it, a superior private label offering, as well as real expertise at the store level and a dynamic loyalty program, then Amazon would destroy you. One by one, over a very short period of time, Dix checked every single box needed to prevent Amazon from crushing it like a bug on a windshield. Plus, it brought everything in-house to control all aspects of the supply chain. Very smart. Now, consider the retail and apparel companies that are thriving here. Tiffany's, Ralph Lauren, Kohl's, Macy's, Lululemon, huge number just tonight, Under Armour, Nike, Home Depot, PVH. In each case, these are companies that have checked off the identical boxes. Those that have only partial checks, Target, Walmart, Lowe's, still have work to do. I think Target's further along than Wall Street does. And those that have failed, like JCPenney and Sears, I don't see any way back. Retail is brutal. But this Christmas will be known as the resurrection of retail, at least for those who recognize what went wrong, pivoted, and got it right like dicks. The stocks are now headed higher, and they should be bought any time they get hit. Believe me, a market where dicks can rally 25% in a day is a, a very good market for retail. And while some of these companies have exposure to goods made in China, I think that lean inventories are far more important and a much better predictor of where their stocks are headed. Stick with Craig. I want to congratulate the good people at General Motors who just got a gigantic cash infusion. They didn't even need it, by the way, uh, for what is basically their cruise division, which is now probably going to be valued north of $12 billion. Do you know that this was the cheapest stock in the S&P 500 until today? What does that tell you about how value is finally coming out? I like to say there's always a bull market somewhere. I promise you to find it just for you. Radio Made Money. I'm Jim Cramer, and I will see you tomorrow. CNBC's Workforce Executive Council is a premier group of C-suite human resources executives from leading companies across the country. It offers a members-only portal and chat, plus exclusive industry content, with access to breaking news calls and digital networking experiences. The network and resources HR leaders need now. Apply to the Workforce Executive Council at cnbccouncils.com slash WEC.